Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we at least attempt to watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. This week, we did not watch Skippy. Well, we watched half of Skippy. This is a this is a two and a half fur. <laughs> this is this is gonna be an interesting episode. We sort of watched Skippy. We did watch Trader Horn, and then just for shits and giggles. We watched City Lights, which was not nominated for Best Picture, but did come out in this year and really should have been nominated. I'm one of your hosts. I'm David Daw. Oh, right. And I'm Susan Araslin. Should we start with Skippy? <laughs> yeah, I guess. I guess we should start with Skippy. And the news that by the time the year is out, the cursed video will have claimed us both and, and killed us. <laughs> so if you're listening to this, someone else has edited it. And released it for us. Yeah. The copy of Skippy we got was a incomplete torrent of a VHS copy of an airing of Skippy from like the 1980s. <laughs> and because of that and the fact that Skippy is kind of inventing every boring child mischief joke you've ever seen in your entire life, <laughs> it was one of the most disturbing film watching experiences of my life. Because when we say we've seen half of it, we don't mean, like, it cut off 50% of the way through. It basically happened in, like, one to two minute spurts and then would freeze for, like, a minute at a time. God, I wish it was that long. Like, it settled in about ten minutes into this structure that I liked to call setup with incredibly obvious punchline. Skip ten seconds through the punchline. Have the dad stared disapprovingly at Skippy for the joke he just made that you cannot hear, and then set up a new punchline that you also didn't get to hear. Yeah, that's that's pretty accurate. And then, like, the last 30 minutes of it, there was just no sound at all, so... Yeah, that's when we finally gave up. So I would say as far as standing the screen test of time, if people don't even care about preserving a movie, we, we have to go ahead and say that it definitely does it. No, and like, honestly, it kind of seems like it's interesting mostly as like a proto Little Rascals or Dennis the Menace rather than for some like amazing contribution to filmmaking. Again, maybe it like really just goes balls to the wall crazy in the last 30 minutes. But I, from the first 40... It didn't seem to have a plot. It seemed like a very literal film translation of like four panel comic strips, which is what it was based on, um, at where it would just kind of like set up a situation and then some jokes would happen in the situation and then the situation would end. It was like watching a month's worth of Mary Worth comics as a movie. <laughs> I think the thing that's most... I don't know, remarkable about it is that Jackie Cooper, who played Perry White in all of the like 70s Superman movies, is the little kid. And that is the most remarkable thing about it. Huh. That makes a weird amount of sense. Like that kid's going to grow up to be that guy. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, Skippy. Let's talk, I think, about the two movies we actually watched because I don't want to 
I don't want to spend our entire show ragging on a movie that we admit we didn't watch all of. But we did try. Yes. So, Traitor Horde, shall we start there? Yeah, let's start there because that also is, that's a movie I wish I didn't watch all of. The way I was describing it to Nikki while I was watching it was it's like um, a wonderful world of Disney short that has like very little plot that's really just a thin excuse for some stock footage of animals, except it's two hours long. My experience with this was comparing it to going on a safari vacation. I went on a few years ago with my fiance. I had a really, really good time. But this was like if our guide, instead of being an actual anti-poacher who loved animals and was really excited about them and knew a lot about them, was a jaded white guy who just hated animals. It's such a weird structure for a film. (laughs) It is a movie dedicated to like every two minutes showing you some short footage of an animal and then having your lead go, fuck that animal. (laughs) Zebras are trash. (laughs) Anyway, on to the next scene. Everything that would happen, this dude would be like, nah, this sucks. (laughs) Boy, it must be interesting to be among the natives. No, the natives suck. It blows to be a traitor. This sucks. I mean, the footage is not... It's not even that it's stock footage. Like, they literally were there shooting film of, like, the majestic animals out on the open plain. Oh, yeah. It's totally the, like, 1931 equivalent of, like, I guess a special effects showcase. But, like, the money is on the screen in, holy shit, they actually filmed an alligator or whatever. Or a lion or, like, I mean, it's incredible. And... I mean, one has to assume that the vast majority of 1931 Americans will live and die having never gone on safari in Africa. And yet this guy's just like, nah, it sucks. <laughs> I got this feeling of like, oh, I guess the weird thing about 1931, like th- this year of the Oscars, is that like they were really into scale in this way that like is so small from a like modern filmmaking perspective. I mean, we saw this in old Arizona where just like, boy, apparently fucking just two years ago, filming outside was nigh impossible. Right. I guess that the Academy really wanted to reward movies that shot outside and were able to make a coherent movie out of it <laughs> between this and and Cimarron. It really just felt like, hey, we we could go to Africa and shoot a movie, so let's do that. And the Academy was like, oh my god, you went to Africa and shot a movie! Yeah, but like, there was no writing involved. It was... Oh god, it was boring. <laughs> We're going to get to talking about a silent movie in a minute, but I kind of wished this was a silent movie. Like, I wished it was just an hour and a half of shots of lions. Because the other thing is, and like, I don't blame Trader Horn itself for this, but the copy of Trader Horn we had, it was very hard to make out what people were saying. And then when you would, you'd be like, oh, God, why did I bother? Why did I put this much effort into listening to this guy just shit on zebras or whatever? Apparently, the sound crew didn't produce anything that was usable in the movie while they were on location. So they had to re-record at, like, the ADR studios in MGM. 
And I, I kind of feel like there was no script. And so the guy was like, well, shit, I don't remember what I said. I don't know. There's a there's a fucking lion. He sucks. Zebras are the worst. <laughs> Honestly, it was remarkable how little it said that was racist about the native tribes because it just didn't bother to say anything. Like, it, he, it, he would just do like, they have drums. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, that's technically true. That's not a racist thing to say about <laughs> African tribes. Yeah, this movie was surprisingly way more absurdly sexist than I expected it to be. Yeah. Because I definitely expected it to be racist when you're reading the description and it's like, oh, they discover a white jungle queen who is the stolen daughter of a missionary. I was like, oh, wow, this is gonna, this is gonna be a mess. And it was a mess, but mostly in framing this woman as just being completely insane by virtue of being a a woman raised among this tribe. Like, all the other women in the tribe are smiling and happy and, like, seem to just be normal, functioning members of society. (laughs) Every single time she's on screen, I'm like, what is- how is this a plot? It's such a weird thing to, like, hang the movie on. It it might be worth, like, comparing and contrasting with City Lights for a second, because I feel like, in a very specific sense, City Lights is similar to this movie, in that the plot is only the, like, very barest necessity to get you to the next sequence in both these films. For, like, the majority of the running time. Yes. Mm, We've only got, like, six minutes of plot for this two-hour movie. So, like, how much confused, unnecessary, just random sexism can we fit in that six minutes of plot? And it turns out, like, a lot. Yeah, a lot. She's almost always screaming and trying to kill people. And she's definitely speaking a made-up language. Yeah. Which is, like, the most offensive part of it. I don't even know if this qualifies as racism because it's coming out of the white woman's mouth, but is supposed to be the language of the black African people that they live among. But they also don't seem to necessarily understand her. She's like some kind of, she's like Nell if Nell had been on a crystal meth bender for like her entire life. She makes random decisions and then like crazy things happen and they're like, well, guess we got to go this way. Hey, there's lions. And, like, that's the entire movie. Yeah, I really, I mean, I can't even explore the plot because there's not really one. It is nuts how little there is to this movie to the point where it's like, well, then why bother? Like, why not just have this be like a Disney 60s short where they're just, like, in a hut and he's showing him pictures of, like, and here's the time I met the mighty lion. And then there's a fucking lion on screen and you're like, holy shit. Like, why did you bother to do this weird offensive five minutes of plot to no effect to basically run down all of the movies that were nominated in this year very quickly we have cimarron which was arguably the best of the nominated movies i guess but was hella racist and sexist East Lynn, which you can't watch, so obviously not good enough that anyone felt like maintaining a copy of it, except for the UCLA vault. The Front Page, which was wildly sexist. Yup. Skippy, which fails by virtue of there, again, not being any decent extant copies of it. 
and Trader Horn, which was like a pretty good safari silent film that was MST3K with a dude who just hated animals, <laughs> but also was in the movie and was wildly sexist. So like everything in this year sucked. I, uh yeah, that was nominated. I mean, there's a thing where it's like, I, I mean, I guess I got to give it to the Academy because like Cimarron was the best picture of these five terrible movies you did not have to pick. <laughs> this is crazy. Saying that it was best picture is a total misnomer. It was the least bad of the five chosen. Yeah. But let's talk about, because after we messed up Frankenstein, the only movie that actually was nominatable this year that didn't get nominated, and it's kind of nuts, uh, which is City Lights. Which was beautiful. Yeah. I realized, like, I so don't ever want to watch a silent movie again until, like, 15 years from now when we have to watch The Artist. And I still really liked this movie. <laughs> Here's the thing. is like, this was a movie. Skippy was not a movie. <laughs> No. Trader Horn was not a movie. Cimarron was at least a movie. And the front page was a movie. Yeah. I mean, the front page was kind of a play that we decided to make a movie in that way that, like, wh why? But, like, this was a thing where, like, I can discuss it as a film and, like, there are problems with it. Like I say, uh, the plot is, especially in, like, the second act pretty damn thin as a series of excuses for Charlie Chaplin to do stuff. But like, one, those sequences are like actually good. And I feel like if every time you went to a lion, my reaction was like, holy shit, it's a fucking lion. I'd think Traitor Horn was great. <laughs> and that's kind of what City Lights was, is like, there were these weird interstitial bits that were excuses to get to our next, like, physical comedy sequence. Right. But then the physical comedy sequences were really good. I mean, I guess this is sort of the thing that Charlie Chaplin is known for anyway, but it's, like, strangely endearing. Like, even the people who are a mess are strangely endearing. <laughs> like, the alcoholic millionaire that he keeps saving from killing himself. Yeah. Who only remembers him when he's in a blackout. Yeah, the only person <laughs> in this movie that's straight garbage is the butler. Fuck that butler. <laughs> Wait, why Why is the butler the, the one person who's straight garbage? Because the butler, like, never has any motive but, like, ruining Charlie Chaplin's day out of propriety. And it's like, fuck that guy. He doesn't have any inner life explored by this film. Everybody else who's like, when the, when the drunk guy is sober, he's kind of garbage. But, like, he has a weird, complex inner life. Almost everybody in this movie does, except the butler who just keeps trying to, like, ruin this poor homeless man's life. Like, one good thing that's ever fucking happened to him. So so should we, like, run down the plot? Do you want to explain what the six minutes of plot are? <sighs> yeah, I guess the easiest explanation is, like, Charlie Chaplin is a street vagabond. He just sort of through chance befriends this super wealthy alcoholic who keeps trying to kill himself uh, whenever he gets drunk. After Charlie Chaplin saves him a couple of times, the guy's like, you're my very best friend in the world. And 
So there's sort of all of these like ups and downs of Charlie Chaplin's luck as this guy gets drunk and gets sober again and gets drunk and gets sober again. And when he's sober, he doesn't remember Charlie Chaplin at all. And yes. it's like, who is this guy in my house? And that's when the butler, who is the, the worst, will throw Charlie Chaplin out of the house instead of being like, hey boss you uh definitely brought this guy home like 10 times well here's the thing the butler also tries to kick him out when the guy is drunk and the guy has to repeatedly insist like no let my friend stay meanwhile the uh sort of i don't know other plot i guess the romance plot is that he is he has fallen in love with a blind flower girl um, and there's some weird stuff to get to in there later. But <laughs> she is a poor blind flower girl, and he is trying to get the money to sort of keep her safe and also let her go to Zurich, where there is a, a magical doctor that can cure blindness for free, but only does it if you come to Zurich. So the sort of last third to half, I guess, of the movie is him sort of doing various things to try and get the money to save her, which he eventually does, but goes to jail for. And then he finally gets out of jail and sees her again. And the movie just kind of sweetly ends on her recognizing him. Yeah, because she can see now, and she and her grandmother have like a really nice flower shop instead of her selling flowers in the streets. And yeah, so Charlie Chaplin does, as far as I can tell, there are three things that he does to try to get the money. One is he becomes a street sweeper, but he keeps being late to work, so he gets fired. Two, he is in a boxing match. Where he basically invents professional wrestling. And then the third one is that he runs into his drunk friend who just came back from Europe and tells his drunk friend about the girl and how, like, her grandmother and the girl are going to get evicted. And so the guy's like, here's a thousand dollars. But then there are burglars in the house. So the tramp calls the police. The police show up. The burglars have run. And the butler is like, it was this guy. He totally was trying to rob my boss because he has the money on him. They think that he was the burglar. Which again, butler's the friggin' worst. But he does manage to run away and avoid the cops long enough to give the money to the flower girl. And then gets arrested and goes to jail for basically indeterminate period of time. And then gets out for the last scene. And really, you're kind of, you're not there for any of this. You're there for sort of the, like, long physical comedy sequences. I, I mean, I guess you're there for parts of it because the the boxing match is sort of an extended physical comedy showcase that's that's very good. There's an earlier kind of dance hall bit that's really solid where he goes to a fancy sort of dinner club with the rich guy. And then there's a lot of just sort of shorter stuff that's pretty great. The second party that he goes to with the rich guy Mm -hmm. looks like the best party ever. Is this the one where he gets the whistle stuck in his throat? Yes. The one at the guy's place? Yes. Yeah, that party was a banger. It looked amazing. It was such a... (laughs) It was such a banger that, like, one, there's a lot of, like, weirdly progressive because this movie is pre-code. It's not like this movie doesn't have gay panic jokes, but it it's almost already at not that there's anything wrong with that gay panic jokes. And it's 1931. And that's weird. But he wakes up in bed with the dude. And you're like, oh, man, they, they really partied too hard. And then you go downstairs and fucking everyone is just asleep on the floor. <laughs> Everybody partied so hard that they just like stayed the night. But yeah, he somehow swallows a whistle at that party 
And so every time he breathes, it, there's a whistle noise. And then out of nowhere, like five dogs just run and jump on him. <laughs> yeah, the sequence where he, he also accidentally calls a cop. <laughs> the setup punchline structure in this movie is really solid. And that is remarkable after the front page. Yeah, yes. There's so many things in this movie that are just like, oh yeah, you could just steal this bit today and it would still work. And I like, in fact, have seen movies that have just stolen bits from this movie in like the last five years that work pretty well. The swallowing the whistle thing, I feel like I just... I just watched something that had that where someone swallowed like part of a bird call. Was this in the second season of Stranger Things? Maybe. I haven't actually watched that yet. Oh. Well, that's not a spoiler because I can't even remember if it was from that. I hope it's the John Ralphio looking motherfucker that did it because that's totally a John Ralphio bit. It's amazing to me that it ends so nebulously. Because for a Hollywood movie, at least for the ones that we've watched, like a nebulous ending is pretty unusual. Yeah, and it's also like, it's the right place to stop, right? Like, there's a version of this where like, I'm pretty confident there's a there's a happy ending on the other side of that, the end. But like, I don't need the like 10 minutes where she like gets him a shave and a bath and like slowly work through what their relationship is. Like I, and like... Boy, Cimarron sure as hell would have done that. The end of Cimarron was, like, the most unnecessary tacked-on epilogue ever. And that this was like, no, the way that this ends is, this is not the ridiculously handsome guy in a silk top hat who stopped in earlier that she's hoping is is the guy she'd never seen before but was in love with. But he showed her so much compassion, like, it's probably gonna work out. Yeah. Also, can we talk about the Doctor and Zurich for a second? Because it's bonkers to me. <laughs> yes, absolutely. We really get a good detailed explanation of this guy. And everybody's like, this guy's a saint. And actually, now that I think about it, he may be an even bigger monster than the butler. <laughs> because this guy has a secret cure for blindness. And like, it totally works. We know for a fact that it works. And ostensibly, he is, like, a great friend to the poor because he will, like, perform this surgery on anyone. Except he won't tell anybody else how to perform the surgery. And you have to go to fucking Zurich for it. It's madness. What is this guy thinking? I, I hadn't really thought about that, but yeah, what a dick move. You've got a cure for blindness and your humanitarian effort is like, maybe everybody should come to Zurich. It's a nice town. Mountain air. Everybody would love it. I mean, it does give it away for free. Yeah. Again, if I said, like, I've got something for free and you have to take a plane to L.A. to get it. It's even worse than that because it's 1931. So there aren't commercial airlines. Oh, were there not? I mean, if there were, they were just starting out. So she had to she had to take a boat. She had to take a boat. And then a, a lot of trade. Yeah, like he's in that prison for a while. I'm just kind of sitting here flabbergasted because now that I'm thinking about it, when it's not just like, oh, yeah, she hopped on a plane to Zurich. She had to go from L.A. So all the way across the United States to New York. Yeah. Take a boat. Probably to, like, Liverpool, then a train to, I don't know, like, Penzance, then a boat from there over to somewhere in France. 
No, I guess she could have. I guess she could have gone to like Dover and then over to that little part of France that was England for a lot of time, and then from there take like multiple trains to get to Switzerland. And she's blind. Yeah, I. Th- I mean, her grandma can come too. But yeah, I'm thinking this is like a four month journey minimum. And her grandma's old. Like that's a lot of travel for an old lady to have to take care of a woman who is blind in a period of time where like assistive infrastructure for people with disabilities was like not a thing. And like presumably it all worked out and they had enough cash left over to start a small flower shop. But like, yeah, it's bonkers. Who does this? What kind of doctor would do this? Like, publish a paper, asshole. It was the kind of thing where when I saw it, I was like, oh, this is a scam. This is definitely for sure a scam. And, like, that's going to be a sad part of the movie when it turns out that, like, Zurich doctor guy is a scam. But then they're going to, like, figure out that, like, they still love each other, even though she's going to be blind forever. Nope. Zurich doctor, miracle doctor can actually cure blindness. He just makes everybody come to Zurich for it. I don't think that, like, his wife runs a hotel or something, is somehow involved in Zurich tourism. Which is why he's like, yeah, we just, we do this for free for anybody who's poor. Just, you know, make sure you stay in this hotel. This is such a great scam because it's such a terrible scam. Like, the amount of money he would make just patenting the procedure and teaching other doctors how to do it is so much less. It's like, no, 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 no. Hotels. That's where the money is. (laughs) Hotels for people who are poor. Because the thing is, like, the procedure is not free, period. It's free for the poor. Right. So... free for the poor who can yet still afford to get to Zurich from anywhere? Yeah. It, yeah. Anyway, it all worked out. And so that's good. It did. It did all work out. And if you don't think too hard about it, it's a really, really beautiful movie. It is in general, even though like, I I think it probably sounds pretty dark as described in a way where like, it is a very, very sweet movie in a way that like, The very first scene, like, the way Charlie Chaplin gets, like, unveiled is he's literally unveiled. He is sleeping under the the sheet that is covering a new monument that's going to be opened up in town. And, like, there is just, like, a huge crowd gathered for the unveiling of this monument. And then there's (laughs) just a homeless man sleeping in the arms of this statue. I watched this movie with, with my wife, with Nikki, and Nikki was... Like, it's so charming to watch a time on film when when we thought the cop's reaction to this would just be befuddled horror and not, like, beating this homeless man to death. And, like... (laughs) Well, you know what? This movie is is not dark, but it really took you to a dark place. It it did, because, like, I I don't know. It's... You're listening to this at some point in 2018, and maybe the world isn't garbage now? I don't know. I'm hoping. No, but the idea that the LAPD would, like, not have aggressively arrested and possibly killed a person who was sleeping in a monument that had just been unveiled, that's a much more innocent time. Yeah, or at least that there were, like, that there's literally, like, no consequences for him for that. He rips his pants. 
That's the entirety of the consequences. And if you want to talk about, like, a solid first joke in a movie, like, I mean, I guess just unveiling him is the first joke. But the first time I laughed at this movie is that his pants get caught in the sword that this statue is has. And so he's just stuck trying to get down with his pants hanging from this sword. And somebody just starts playing the national anthem. And he just feels the need to salute. He still tries to salute while hanging by his pants from this statue. It's a good bit. It's a solid bit. It really is. It's a across the board is a pretty sweet movie, even when it delves into some of the darker things like this millionaire who keeps trying to commit suicide. A blind girl who's maybe not treated that well by society. Our main character goes to jail for an indeterminate length of time. Like, dark stuff happens in this movie, but they handle the tone very well. And it is a very funny and sweet movie, despite all the dark stuff that happens in it. So yeah, I guess what we're saying is, for the first year, the Academy fucked up so badly that we actually can't agree that any of the movies nominated should have won Best Picture. I don't think any of the movies... Cimarron maybe should have been nominated for Best Picture. I don't think any of the other movies should have been nominated for Best Picture. I don't know four other movies from 1931 off the top of my head, but like, one, we established Dracula would have been viable for competition. Right. So like, Cimarron, Dracula, and City Lights, and then shut out the other four of these movies would have been a way better pick. Oh, way better. Way better. So yeah, I'm gonna say of the movies nominated, even though I thought Cimarron was an overstuffed piece of Oscar bait that was super racist and had a really nonsensical plot i guess they picked the right one of the five wrong ones they chose yeah good news i guess about the academy's decision is we're finally free from it and we can finally start watching 1931 to 1932 oh my god and i could not be more relieved i didn't think that this project would be so much in danger of being derailed this early on yeah (laughs) and never because the movies were so bad (laughs) (sighs) but next week brings us to the smiling lieutenant which is an ernst lubitsch musical comedy starring maurice chevalier i already have deja vu wait oh there's two Maurice Chevalier films in 1931-1932? Because one one hour with her is also him. Uh, no. Oh, God, are you kidding me? Oh, it's another Lubitsch film as well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. So, yeah, it's going to be... That's going to be fun. But this is the same guy who did Love Parade. Same director and same star. All right, that could be worse then. Yeah. It'll be cute, I guess. Then I've got to say, one, from the poster, it looks like this is going to be a good movie because the poster is garbage. Two, the week after this, we are watching the thing with the best poster I have seen. Oh gosh, what's it the second week? Bad Girl. Oh yeah, which I have been excited about since I thought about doing this project. (laughs) That poster is amazing. And so the movie is probably garbage. Yes. But in the meantime, yes, we get to watch Maurice Chevalier float around singing and being charming again. Mm-hmm. 
for one of our one of the two Maurice Chevalier. Yeah, I, I can't believe I'm going to watch three Maurice Chevalier musicals directed by Ernst Lubitsch in my life. At least. At least. We are going into musical territory. So, like, I will be surprised if that's all we get. Oh, yeah, there, there's another one in 1943. All right. Not starring Maurice Chevalier, though, so... Oh, well, fuck that then. <laughs> so, until next week... Some of what we discussed today. I mean, that was a movie, which is remarkable because we watched two and a half of them. <laughs> so we will, we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs>